This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational. And this month, we're highlighting an exciting new book and the third book from Craig Barton. Craig's third book is called Tips for Teachers, not to be confused with my recent Tools for Teachers. And this book brings together over 400 insights from guests on Craig's new podcast of the same name, Tips for Teachers, as well as Craig's own experience working in schools around the world. Inside, you will find 22 ideas to enhance mini whiteboard use, 15 ideas to improve the start of your lesson, 14 ideas to help make silent teacher effective, seven ways to respond if a student says they do not know, and lots, lots more. Each idea can be implemented the very next time you step into a classroom. So whatever your level of experience, subject or phase, there's plenty of ideas in this book to help take your teaching to the next level. With the special code ERRR30, you can also get 30% off all books via the John Cat website. This includes Craig Barton's new book, Tips for Teachers, as well as my two books too, Cognitive Learning Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. Again, that code for 30% off is ERRR30. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they are engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. In this episode of the ERRR podcast, we're speaking with Harry Fletcher Wood. Harry is a phenomenal educator with a wide-ranging career teaching in Japan, rural India, the UK and working in such fantastic organisations as Teach First, the Ambition Institute and more recently StepLab and Teacher Tap. Harry is the author of a number of books including his first book Ticked Off, his third book Habits of Success which was the subject of ERRR podcast number 57 which I also might add is the second most downloaded ERRR episode behind only Anita Archer's episode. And Harry has also written his second book, Responsive Teaching, which is the topic of today's discussion. Now, you may note, listeners, that we've done these two books in the wrong order. But that's because following my last episode with Harry, I went back to read his second book because I recently saw Josh Goodrich write online that he thinks that Responsive Teaching is the best book on teaching and learning that teachers can read. Now, that was a real vote of confidence. 
The idea of responsive teaching is closely related to the idea of formative assessment. It's essentially the same thing. That is, it's ensuring that initial teaching is clear, and then it's checking what students have and haven't learned, and adjusting your teaching accordingly. This is absolutely core knowledge for all teachers, and is arguably the most important idea for teachers to master. And dear listeners, I can confirm that this book that we're discussing today, Responsive Teaching, is the best book that I've come across about the idea of formative assessment. I just can't recommend responsive teaching highly enough. If you're keen for a weekly injection of educational insight, stimulation and resources, then sign up to my weekly edu email. Each week, I share with subscribers all of the juiciest educational tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up into an easy digest and a short email message. Join thousands of teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas in education every Friday afternoon. To sign up, go to ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 73 of the ERRR podcast with Harry Fletcherwood. Harry Fletcherwood, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back and we'll see if we can push this up into the, the, the top of the charts. First question, Harry, what is responsive teaching? So Mary Kennedy, who's one of my favourite sort of writers and thinkers about education, talks about there being four or maybe five endemic problems in teaching. For example, she talks about the, the, the problem of portraying the curriculum to naive minds. And that means taking a complicated set of ideas and portraying them in a way that's simple enough for students to understand, but compl- complicated enough to do justice to the underlying idea. And the reason why she calls them endemic is she says, look, these are problems which every teacher faces. They are intrinsic to teaching. You could be teaching brilliantly for 20 years, but it will still be hard to do this. And so there are four core problems, portraying the curriculum, finding out what students have understood when their minds are closed to us, managing students' behaviour, and as she puts it, gaining cooperation, and I would see more broadly as kind of motivating students. And I find this a really helpful way to to think about teaching, to organise ideas, our ideas, and, and, and pretty much everything that you do in the classroom falls into one of these four things or sometimes more than more than one at a time so responsive teaching is primarily about the first two of these it's about finding ways to portray the curriculum to naive minds and simply put i argue that the 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 best way of doing this is to find out what cognitive science tells us about how people learn and then try and apply that to our teaching and second to find out what students have understood and to adapt our teaching accordingly and i argue that we can do that using the techniques and strategies that have been developed through formative assessment, assessment for learning. So when I put it like that, it sort of sounds quite simple, but it's actually really hard. So for example, cognitive science, lots of it is is obvious, like don't overload students' working memory. If you've ever given students three instructions and then seen them complete like zero or one or two of them, you've experienced the, the barrier of cognitive load uh, of limited working memory, but changing the way that we explain, that we instruct, that we ask questions is really difficult. And some of it's really not obvious. So there are lots of things around like desirable difficulties, which are really counterintuitive. The idea that distributing practice and making it hard and demotivating your students in the first instance is going to make them allow them to to, um, retain more subsequently is really hard to believe and act on. And then there are lots of barriers, like cognitive science work has been done and loads of cognitive science work has been done in maths and science, some in English. I'm a history teacher, pretty much nothing has been done in history. So there's work of interpretation to be done to look at the findings and work out how they can apply and what the limitations are. 
Similarly with formative assessment, like Rob Coe put this really nicely, and this was almost a decade ago. He said, pretty much every teacher in England will tell you they're doing formative assessment, assessment for learning. We've got really good evidence that assessment for learning uh, improves outcomes. And yet uh, in England to that date, standards had pretty much flatlined according to international bases. So the challenge is taking a load of things that people think they already know or are already doing and responsive teaching and trying to convey some of these ideas in a way that helps them change their practice Final sort of word on it is like I mentioned Kennedy's four problems and said these are tackling the first two. And actually, if we get these right, that will deal with some of our behavior and motivation challenges. If students know what they're doing and they're experiencing success, they're more likely to want to keep going. Great, great. So, kind of summarizing that, we've got responsive teaching is captured in those two words, kind of teaching responsively, where teaching is finding out ways to portray the curriculum to naive minds um, and you mentioned kind of all the, the science cognitive science science of learning that goes behind that and then the responding part finding out what students have understood and essentially that kind of formative assessment piece that's great harry you've, you've clearly been very thoughtful about how you've set out this book so for example each chapter has sections like problem evidence principle practice experience and checklists i wanted to ask kind of broadly what does it take for a teacher to get better and in particular how does the structure of this book as you've presented it support teachers to get better so i i to answer this i'm going to kind of go in the future to after writing the book if that's the right way of describing the 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 time so i worked on a project last year which was a big review of teacher professional development and i know you've had sam sims on the podcast to discuss it and we reviewed over 100 randomized controlled trials of professional development and we found it was more likely that a professional development program would improve student learning improve teaching to improve student learning if it did four things it promoted insight it motivated goal-directed behavior it taught techniques uh, and embedded practice. So to change as a teacher, I need, for example, to understand that working memory is limited. That's the insight. Decide that this is a priority and I'm going to do something about it. That's the goal. Have a practical technique to address it, like chunking my instructions into smaller units, and then make that change fit my practice. Keep doing it until it becomes a habit. So like I said, I worked on this review after I'd written responsive teaching, but I think you've kind of like that model can explain a lot of the bits of, of the structure of the book. And I guess I'd sort of partially work them out before we did this big review. So I tried to summarize the evidence, but I also tried to wrap it in a narrative about a teacher to make the insight that we're working towards kind of graspable. Um, I didn't do loads about motivate it, motivation, because I think if you've picked up the book and you're bothering to read it, you're probably motivated to change. But I did try and point the way about how, how the change can help and offer some guidance about the kind of goals you could set. I tried to break down the techniques and give loads of examples. And at the time I was writing the book, I was working with trainee teachers. So um, I, I was sort of watching them, like I'd be sitting in a lesson observation. I'd see them like half do a thing that I tried to train them in. And they'd be like, oh, stop, like get over the book, like type a little note. You need to say something about this. Um, and so one thing that I've put into the book, which I don't know if I'd seen before, is, is like not just completed examples, but partially complete examples to say like, okay, this is what like, you try and write an exit ticket, but it's actually not a great exit ticket. So this is what you end up with. And, and now let's refine that. And then some of the, the checklists and the um, the some advice kind of at the end is, I think, to do with trying to help people make it into a habit. A couple of other things that I was trying to do was like, I was trying to, to show, not tell, and to make the change seem really easy and viable rather than just sort of 
haranguing people and and structuring it in a narrative kind of helps with that so there are lots of points in the book in a book where i'd find myself writing things like you should do this and like no one wants to hear, hear that really so so writing it around like you know johnny realized that he should do this allows me to say you should do this in a way that kind of feels i think accessible and then i guess the, the final thing that i was trying to do was was like leave room for interpretation and that's what the i think the so the, the experience sections which are the bits where um of uh, other teachers who i'd run into during the book who read draft chapters who were doing interesting work and i was like please can you write 500 words or so about what you're doing um, and that's really cool because sometimes their take on the way to do things was like not exactly the same as what i said in the chapter and that i hope represents the idea that like you have to do it in your own way you have to like you've got to cleave to the principles but once you've got the principles go wild and make it fit fit your work mm. i'm just thinking back to that um what you said about rob co saying every teacher says they're doing formative assessment but they're doing different things and it isn't improving necessarily improving results across the board and then comparing that to what you were saying there about how people would write a portion and it wouldn't necessarily match. It's just an interesting thing about, I mean, the idea of lethal mutations and how far you can stretch it and under, making sure you do understand the principles as the first point of call before you translate and things like that. Very cool. And also it's very nice, isn't it nice and neat that the big uh, research review that you did a couple of years after writing the book seemed to generally align with the structure that you that you set out in the book itself. I'm, I'm wondering, Harry, following kind of that research review that you did with Sam Sims and the rest of the team and, and what you now know a few years on of working with teachers and things like that, if you were to go back and write the book again, is there anything you'd change about it that you think would make it more impactful or more effective at changing teachers' behaviour? Not loads. So so habits of success that we've we've talked about, like built on this, and in many ways I sort of there were lots of structural things that I'd worked out in writing responsive teaching that I was like, I like, and I'm going to keep doing. One thing, so Doug Lemoff gave me some some cool feedback and he said, like, not that's annoying, but he was like, each chapter is written around a teacher, but those teachers are made up in my head, although clearly like, they're based kind of on, on people in situations that I'd seen. And he was like, it'd be cool if they were real. So in Habits of Success, I, I, I worked with a bunch of teachers and I wrote like all of those examples that each chapter was structured around were real situations, which I don't know if it made a huge difference, but I think it's quite nice. Uh, another thing I tried to do in Habits of Success is, is make the book even more legible. So like every single chapter at the start of the chapter, there was a chapter map where it's like, here are the big ideas. And then literally after every paragraph, there's a quick one line summary. So I might do that. And then I might be tempted to be a little bit more directive. So my the book that I'm just finished drafting at the moment I had a section at the end of each chapter that I had initially titled suggested activity. And I've literally just changed that to say what to do next. Not because I expect everyone to do what I say to do next, but I think sometimes if, if you are suggesting a step, it's it's cool to be like clear about it. Even if people, like once you're clear about it, people can then think like, oh, I'm going to reject that. Or I'm going to modify that. But at least they know exactly what you're suggesting. So not loads, but like there's always, always tweaks you can make. Mm, that's cool. I'm particularly interested in that real versus constructed kind of characters idea. <laughs> it's funny because like knowing that they're real, as a reader, I think that's helpful. I, I will say I also had a similar feeling to, to dug around those kind of um, invented characters. I, I'm wondering if as an author, it's a different feeling as well in any way basing things on real people versus kind of amalgamated people. I mean, the, the interesting thing is like people don't 
like your 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 created characters respond the way you want them to, and your non-created characters don't. So in some like I worked with someone who who sort of is in habits of success under her name called Adele about she had this particular challenge about um she couldn't get her students to she had students who were struggling to decode uh, and she couldn't get them to use a phonics mat. And I suggested a few things that she could do. And I suggested a couple of things that I thought were really cool and a couple of other things that I was like, well, it's worth a pop. Uh, and and for the sake of the narrative, it would be really handy if the things that I thought were really cool were the things that made a big difference. But it wasn't. It was a couple of like the other, like I was like, oh, you could try this as well. She was like, ah, oh, that was the thing that, that that made a difference. So yeah, your your fictional characters don't react in exactly the same way but i would say like i mean i don't that none of none of the characters in the chapters of responsive teaching are like based on uh, there was not like there was a person i had in mind and i just changed the name but like i said i was working with trainees i was doing loads of training at the time so like a, all of those reactions are things that i had like talked to someone and they had reacted and done so i think to me that like the line is less far because if you put a real character in often a real person in often you're gonna have to do a bit of fictionalization to like maintain their anonymity or maintain the anonymity of the kids and if you put a fictional character in they're gonna be based on real so what is reality i it's it's a fine line yeah yeah i i agree i think I mean, there's some simplification that goes on, even if it is just so that you don't end up spending 20,000 words trying to describe one particular scenario and you, know, you can do it in 500 instead. But I think also there's something that's conveyed through the use of real characters around the kind of messiness of implementation. Like even just that narrative you shared then, it tells readers like, these these are ideas, these are best bets, but also you might find out it's something different. And if the thing you, if our number one recommendation here isn't what you find is the number one most effective thing, that's okay as well. And so it kind of sends an implicit message about adaptation and the importance of that, which I think is is super valuable as well. And I think to your point about lethal mutations, like you're only going to avoid lethal mutations if you have a series of examples which show like the boundaries with like here is essentially you're saying here are some things you can change and it'll still work and here are some things you can't change but saying that in black and white like non-fiction prose it's kind of oh, whatever and saying that through like here's a real person and this is what they changed and this is how it worked is is a much more powerful and credible way to to convey that can be for sure cool so chapter one this is very much on this kind of, so responsive teaching is two things, it's teaching and it's doing it responsively. On the teaching side of things, chapter one is all about how can we plan a unit when we want students to learn so much and have so little time. Harry, what's your number one planning tip for teachers? I'm going to sort of do this in a, in a two-part two answer. So, so like the, the simple or the abstract answer is like pick one clear goal and focus everything around it. So, so like decide what is the one thing my lesson is about and what can go. And and again, if I give you a, a really concrete example, um, a point at which this became clear to me was watch, sitting in an English lesson and watching, and it was like students had done, they'd read a chapter of Shakespeare play or Animal Farm or whatever it was, and they'd been like trying to make sense of it. And then it was like, oh, you're going to write a diary extract as Snowball or Macbeth or whoever you're writing a diary extract as. And realizing like those are two completely different things and you can't get better at both of those things simultaneously. So you should either probably do a, a diary extract or you should do a lesson about the chapter and then you should just 
that should like be a really blunt question like what is Macbeth thinking in this chapter not because both of those things aren't desirable but because you, like if you think of kind of deliberate practice model with no diary okay we're going to look at a model of a diary another model of diary and then you're going to do a bit of practice of a diary then you're going to write your own diary um or we're going to do like look at the chapter break the chapter down and, and mixing those two things up i think is is unhelpful but then a, a, like an even more concrete tip, I was asked by a trainee teacher a few years ago while I was doing a talk about responsive teaching. She was like, okay, what should I do tomorrow? And I was like, okay, look at your lesson. There's probably like five activities in it, like pick four and delete them uh, and just pick one and make that the main. So instead of doing like five minutes, and this is what I definitely do as a trainee teacher, like I don't want the kids to get bored. There's going to be five minutes of that, 10 minutes of that. Da, 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 da. Um, so like picking one activity and instead of we're going to do it in Russian, then move on. Like this is the core activity. I'm going to add a bit of time for the model. I'm going to add a bit of time to give feedback or for students to give feedback on each other's work or something like that. So that's kind of a, a, like a way of operationalizing that, that first bit of advice. Oh, that's great, Harry. I love that. So yeah, just be really clear on what you want students to learn and pick one activity that represents that best and then flesh it out such that it's done to a really, really high high level of quality. And the one of the attractive things about that is it's a way, I think, of teaching better while also being a way of making your life a little bit easier. And that's the sweet spot, right? Like you don't have to plan five activities anymore. Just plan one, make it really good. Kids will probably learn more and you've like, cut your planning time by 70, 80%. Yeah. Amazing. In terms of planning, another really important idea is the idea of kind of coherence and that's both coherence within a lesson, within a subject, within a year level. But another challenge is creating coherence kind of across subjects and across years. This is something you talk about a little bit in the book. So what advice do you have for people who are striving for such coherence? Non-advice, but like it's really hard and I have seen it done like badly and I've seen lots of effort gone into it that like hasn't had the, the desired effect. Um, I think it's helpful to, to, to start to think about it, start thinking about it from a point of view of saying we're going to have our disciplinary and age related goals that's not the thing we're going to compromise on. Um, so I, I like, you know, I've been part of projects where originally the plan was like, I was going to do about bees. So like scientists will do like bees and mathematicians, I don't know, prime numbers are probably involved and historians can do like be the beehive houses from Neolithic times. And you're like, that is like, it's a beautiful, fun idea. It might make an interesting museum exhibition, but like that's not going to power great learning. Work out what you really want to teach and what you have to teach as a, um, you know, English teacher, history teacher, whatever. But then once you've done that, make it legible to one another and identify the connections and identify. And the key thing is to build them into your planning documents, whatever they are. So if you are a teacher who's been around for a few years and you've taught like all the different year groups and, and you like have sat in on your colleagues' lessons, you'll be able to do really cool things. They were like, oh, I know that three weeks ago in science with Senso, you were just learning this and we're building on that. Until you've been in your school for like five, seven years, you can't do that. So if you want teachers to be able to do that, you need to build into it. And it's, it can just be like a little note, like at the like you're in the middle of this scheme of work and students in this other department or this other, like will also be doing this. So students will have covered this last year. Try asking this question. Yeah. And I think what, what like you then just make it really easy, even for an inexperienced teacher to, to make those connections. And it's not like 
it's not the core of what we do. The core of what we do is still like, I'm going to teach you Macbeth. I'm going to teach you um, quadratic equations. But what we're doing is we're boosting retention. We're boosting coherence. We're making it make sense for students. And those little prompts, I think, can, can make a really big difference. Cool. I think that's such a powerful bit of advice, Harry, because often we think about like creating connections, like with that bees example. It's like as a school we go, oh, we're all going to look at bees. And then everyone spends hours, all the teachers spend hours kind of modifying lesson plans, creating maths questions around bees, like whatever it might be, which, you know, creates kind of some connections, but they're kind of like surface level connections, right? They're pretty unsatisfying and they're also immensely time consuming. Whereas what you're suggesting is kind of like everyone plans their teaching. And then when that's happened, we get together and we authentically share like what we're teaching and say what actual real tangible connections are there here that we can actually as teachers get excited about because like I would be excited about about that if if I sat down with the the science department or the the history department or something and said what are you teaching and like let's see if see what's in common and then we can authentically and be like wow this like you were doing some stuff in science is really cool because there's this connection here rather than like because we're all looking at bees here's a question about bees um so I love that I think it also boosts professional growth and like uh, professional collaboration. Like the, the projects that I've done where even if it's just like, oh, if you are teaching this World War One unit, I'm just going to kind of like, I'm just curious as to what you're teaching about it. Partly because, you know, like I'm a history teacher, so I, I think I know better than you about the history of it. So I want to come and hear what, you know, w- what it is you're saying, but also just, yeah, curiosity. And that that's the kind of thing that keeps people fresh and, and yeah, builds like builds professional um, collaboration. Yeah, totally. That's what, I, that's what I was trying to get to when I was saying it's actually exciting. It's exciting for me to think about that, whereas it's like immensely demotivating for me to think about trying to make connect my lesson to bees somehow. Thank you for that fantastic advice. Um, another, in terms of planning, something that's got gained a fair bit of airtime over the last few years is the idea of knowledge organisers. Uh, and it, it's also something that you touch on in quite a bit of detail in the book. So, Harry, for, for listeners who haven't heard of, about Knowledge Organiser before, what is a knowledge organiser? And just as importantly, what makes a good one? I think the easiest way to explain it is to, to do like non-example example. And I, if I'm sort of doing a training about this, I will like project like here's how I used to plan a unit and here's how I now would plan a unit and how I used to plan a unit and I put up a real unit plan that at the time I was really proud of there'd be like a lot of stuff around objectives like students will be able to do this students will be able to remember that and then there'd be some suggested activities and then there'd be a lesson title and that would kind of be it and then tied to that you might like create the powerpoints or whatever and that sounds very reasonable but the issue that I think knowledge organizers tackle really helpfully is the need for specificity. So an example that that I could give uh, coming from history would be say, okay, we want students to know the causes of the dispute uh, over the crown in 1066. And that sounds quite concrete, but actually when you get into it, you say, well, there's a simple answer, which is like two people want to be king at the same time. And then there's a more complicated answer, which is like, okay, well, Harold had maybe gone over to Normandy and promised to William that he would support his claims. And then there's like a super complicated answer, which says, look, okay, the Vikings have been raiding and there's like this Anglo-Norse kingdom. And like, there are also the Vikings in France who become the Normans, which you could write a book about. And so if I say, and then another example that I give is then to do with adding fractions, and it comes from um, some some quite dated but really interesting work, which say, look, if you have students adding fractions, if I say, okay, I, I taught my students to add fractions, 
and I then give them a test. Whether I choose fractions that are quite simple, like a half and a quarter is a lot easier to add than like 12 seventeenths and 19 40 thirds or whatever. So when I say I've taught my students to add fractions and you say you've taught your students to add fractions, if we're not talking about the same fractions, we're not really talking about the same thing. There's a really roundabout way to say, look, if you say give an objective that was all, always intrinsically vague, you need to specify like the, the outcome, the knowledge. And so instead of saying students will be able to add fractions with shared denominators or different denominators, you'd say like students will be able to add fractions like or including halves, quarters, thirds and fifths. But then we're not expecting them to do sixths, sevenths and, and so on. Or students will know that in 1066, Harold's sitting on the throne, William wants the throne, the other Harold is thinking he might uh, invade and so on. So a knowledge organiser is the, so I'm, I'm deliberately steering clear from saying like a knowledge organiser needs to have columns and this is and that uh, because there's been a lot of ink spilt and podcast data time used uh, arguing about this stuff that I think is like not that productive and people being like well that's like that's not a real knowledge organizer or just taking like their curriculum document and changing the title from scheme of work to, to knowledge organizer a knowledge organizer is useful and is well structured in as much as it specifies what students should know at the end of the unit and it's what students should know not what they should have done or thought about or whatever it's really hard to, to write one because you have to be a lot more specific in, in your own mind i think that makes it then really good in terms of your subject knowledge and you're going back through the textbooks and saying well or like the curriculum or whatever and saying what should be included what should not be included uh, and then by subject you might like vary that so in history there's going to be people there's going to be themes there's going to be events in science there might be like models and diagrams that you'd be able to label and technical terms and so on that i think is what a knowledge organizer is and that i think is is what makes a good one cool now an interesting question when i was at michaela not too long ago i asked a, a question to Catherine bevelsing i think the question was actually from your boss laura mcinerney i think she she proposed this one on twitter but it was What's something you've changed your mind about? Which I think is a great question. And Catherine said, you know, I change my mind about things all the time. One example is knowledge organizers. We used to use them and we don't anymore. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Why don't you use knowledge organizers anymore? And she said, we found that because they used to use them for student self-quizzing to make sure the students really knew the, like, the core information, you know, chunk and automate all that kind of idea. And she said, we found that the students were kind of, they'd know what was on the knowledge organizer, but they were developing quite inflexible knowledge and we were finding it hard to push them to deeper levels of analysis and understanding. I'm really curious on your response to that. I guess, one, have you seen that? And two, if not, why not? Or if you have seen it, what advice do you have to people such that they can use these knowledge organizers effectively without kind of it ending up being a checklist that kids are just kind of reciting? I think there's a process where any tool is first exciting and novel and then stale and and tired. And on a more optimistic day, I think that the tool has got us to a higher base. And, and on a less optimistic day, I just say we're going around in circles. I can definitely see how and why that that like that makes a lot of sense as as being the case. Uh, and and the the simple explanation would be look like if students always access the knowledge through the same prompt. Like if if you might like imagine like something really basic like you want students to know some number bonds or some multiple multiplication facts. If students always do three times two and never do two times three. When you ask them two times three, there's a chance they're going to say, I don't know, we've never done that. And so. 
a knowledge organizer that like fixes the knowledge in quite a narrow over specified way doesn't promote that flexibility i still think like maybe it's more useful for the teacher than the student because once the teacher knows what should be on there they can then do stuff with it like one obvious like obvious in the abstract but probably impractical way to do it would be to say like actually every three weeks you should move around all the prompts on the the knowledge organizer so if it says three times two you should change it from two times three and ever it says like who was the chancellor of germany in 1931 you then change it to say like what role did hindenburg have in 1931 so like clearly that's not actually practical in a paper form although if you've got a bank of digital questions it becomes very very practical but the key thing i think is, is students accessing learning through a range of different methods if we take a side note you use anki right for do you use it for language yeah i use it for everything right cool so so i've used things like duolingo i've used things like Closemaster, which is very similar to anki and they're really powerful in terms of like just forcing in more vocabulary but for people who aren't familiar with the idea yeah sorry yeah um but but more powerful than that is programs like my for language learning like michael thomas or Lang- language transfer which get you to understand the core features and get you to use it in loads of different different ways and so in the same way a knowledge organizer is a useful tool if it can be used by a teacher who then pushes you to use that knowledge flexibly, if the knowledge is is just in a like in an atrophied like the answer is the question is always this and the answer is always that, then maybe all the people who say it's sort of bringing back Victorian grad grind education had a point. Yeah, that's good. I, I think that analogy with kind of flashcard apps is a really powerful one because I have gone through a, quite an interesting kind of journey myself with flashcard digital flashcards. Uh, I, th- I think what you said before is of like a, a new tool will always seem like the answer for a while until you start to see its shortfalls is very, very much true for me in flashcards because when I started to use them, I was like, oh, this is going to solve my problems. I'm going to remember everything. And then I found that, you know, some cards would be one or two years old and I'd just be forgetting them. I f- forgot where I came from and so on and so, and so forth. And so the, the way I've started to see kind of flashcard, flashcard retrieval now is it's kind of like a placeholder or it's kind of like a it, it maintains a shallow, fragile kernel of knowledge that would not be maintained otherwise that can then be nurtured into a more complex schema if it is revisited in the context of or in a new context or used in a new way. If it is used in that way or if it is nurtured in that way, it's incredibly powerful and the, the maintenance of that kernel was a really, really valuable thing to do. If it's never nurtured in that way, it will, be, it will lose its meaning, it will lose its context and it will essentially be a waste of time and it will eventually get forgotten because it's not meaningfully connected to anything else. So I think my, so that's yeah, a powerful now, knowledge, analogy in the context of knowledge organisers if we see each of these facts that sits on it as that kind of kernel that is only valuable if it is actually nurtured a number of times. Yeah, like necessary but not sufficient for deep learning, right? Like, is it like people who say you're going to achieve deep learning without this 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 kind of basis are, are, are wrong, I think. But believing that it's enough is 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 naive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or perhaps even not necessarily necessary, but helpful but not sufficient, maybe. Um, is it might be how I would think about it. Uh, th- that relates to kind of an, an important idea from Graham Nuttall, and you had a good quote on this in your book, which goes as, as follows. For listeners, Graham Nuttall is a New Zealand researcher who 
I spent hours and hours recording student interactions within classrooms and then analyzing them to work out what it actually is that leads to student learning. And he wrote an excellent book um, shortly before his passing called The Hidden Lies of Learners. And here's an excerpt that you shared in Responsive Teaching from that book. We discovered that a student needs to encounter on at least three different occasions the complete set of the information she or he needed to understand a concept. If the information was incomplete or not experienced on three different occasions, the student did not learn the concept. I mean, it's it's almost it's almost too simple, <laughs> um, but but in many ways, like I'm, I'm sure many, this rings true for many teachers. It incorporates the idea of kind of space practice. It also kind of touches on what we were talking about there in terms of things being complete or in in a in a meaningful context rather than just bitsy um, and therefore not really meaningfully connected to anything with students. But if we think about this idea, this this three exposures to the, the complete set of information, do you have advice to teachers about how to actually make sure that students receive these three? Because it's it's actually kind of counter to the standard practice, I would say, in most classrooms around the world. Usually you do it once and then you move on. So how can people make sure they do this, Harry? So, so if I sort of start off with an example, uh, I taught US politics for a few years and one, like fundamentally the way I came to see it was like, all you needed to know was the US constitution and the news. And if you could stick those two things together, like constitution is kind of your framework. And then the news is a kind of, so, okay, you know, like we say, we're going to have a Senate and a judiciary and this, and then the news would be like, oh, the Senate is refusing to uphold the president's nomination for a Supreme court judge. And you're like, okay, now it all makes sense. And so what I came to realize, like in about week one or week two, I would do half an hour, 40 minutes being like, here's the constitution, who's here, what's this, da 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 And then sometime, maybe two, three months later in the year, someone would say something and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to stop the lesson. I'm basically going to redo, it's going to take about as long again. I'm going to redo the constitution. Here's a da 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 But, and then like we, we'd end up, end up doing a third time. And this is not because I'd read Nuttall at this stage. This was just, I was like, the constitution is core. If you don't understand it, nothing is going to make sense. And we're going to take as long as it takes for you to, to make sense of it. And in some ways that was quite, easy because it was like a small group it was a year 13 and a level course and i had like a lot of flexibility over how i planned it and loads of the topics like overlapped with each other so the order that i was doing it them in didn't, didn't really matter and so on but i think there's something in there that probably applies to all our teaching but it's like it's not how we normally would plan a year seven course because year seven course very often be, like in history it'd be like we can do this and then we do this and then we do this and even in math i guess you're like we're gonna do quadratic equations and then we're gonna put those on the side until like two years time but this idea of picking out like what are the core ideas and rather than doing again i could do it ad hoc because i had loads of time and and it, it was really core cool, but saying well okay here is a core idea and i'm going to plan to do it in september and i'm going to plan to redo it for in like three quarters of the time again in january and i'm going to plan to redo it in in march and in, in a quarter of the time again so it's it's like Picking out that core and, and recognizing that, that that means like loads of other stuff is going to go by the wayside. But if we don't have that core, it's not going to work. Like students aren't going to recall stuff. And then putting it into our planning documents. And again, like I'm, I'm always exercised by what you offer the less experienced teacher. And I think for the less experienced teacher, explicitly saying like, you need to do this in month one and month four. And then as the teacher gains experience, you, you, you build them to a place where they're, they're the ones being like, I'm not going to do month four because they're doing fine at the minute, but day one of month five is the time I'm going to have to do it. Have you seen some schools that do this? 
I haven't. I don't get into as many schools as I'd like to at the moment. But also when I talk to people about this, there's still even like people are like, oh, yeah, I get retrieval is really important, but I've got so much curriculum to cover and it's really difficult. And I would like to see it more. It's a bold and scary step to say, but I, th I think it is the kind of, there's the like, oh, more, more, faster, faster, just keep going school of things. And even if you know on one level that like it's not working, to, to take the step outside that and say, I'm going to cut 20% of the curriculum because something else is more important is really hard, really hard to do, really scary. Mm. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to that spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. As I mentioned at the start of this interview, formative assessment and responsive teaching is perhaps the most important idea for teachers to really get their heads around. And Harry's approach is, in my experience, the most comprehensive, deep, and practical approach to this core skill that I have seen. So that's what this month's summary is all about. In this episode's summary, you'll hear all about Harry's tips for planning, the promotion of coherence in the curriculum, knowledge organisers, multiple exposures, modelling and the identification of success criteria, and, from the second half of the interview, exit tickets and hinge questions, what makes good feedback, advice for feedback policies, translating these ideas into practice, and more. At higher tiers, ERRR supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR. Clip requests of your favourite episode segments and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast and to explore additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast. Chapter three, mm -hmm. how can we show students what success looks like? So responsive teaching is teaching responsibly, responsively and responsibly. We're, we're, still, we're still having a look at this teaching part and we're, we're kind of, you, you talked before about how that's a big part of that's modelling. So I guess this is showing students what success looks like in, in one way is kind of the idea of modelling. My favourite idea in this chapter, I'm going to read out a little portion from it, identifying criteria. This is an example of an activity. Students read a strong and weak experiment report. They compare them section by section and formulate what a strong report must include. This forms a checklist for them, but also leads them to return to the model as they write their own reports rather than relying on the list of criteria alone. This is something I've done in my own science classes and, and I, it was one of the most powerful things that I did in my year 11 and 12 physics classes, I would say. And I actually had one student come up to me. So, so what I did, I did this and I, I actually didn't get them to identify the criteria. I kind of had boxes for them and I said, 
here's a, the good example, here's a not so good example, and I got them to write what the difference was and relate it back to the, the kind of rubric that I'd already provide. I had a student come up to me and said, sir, thank you so much for doing this. We've been getting these rubrics for years and I never actually knew what they meant, but now I really understand what this means. Like, it's so, like, why didn't someone do this with me earlier? And I think another key thing is in there, which is, you know, it not only helps students understand what, what the criteria mean, it also helps them to return to the, the model or the example as they're writing their own report. I mean, like like that student, uh, the, the era that I came into teaching, it was like, you've got to share the success criteria with students. And I'd like, I'd do it. And then I'd be like, this is mad because, it, it, and, and Daisy Christodoulou is, is really good on this. It's like the abstract success criteria are abstract success criteria. And students are then being told like, oh, the way to get a higher grade is to go from like, analysis to like sustained and profound analysis and literally no one knows what that means and it was only when i i read a really cool article that i talk about in in the book a little bit by a a, a history teacher who'd done this thing where like they spent a load of time reading a history book about soviet russia that was an example of beautiful reading and coming up with and this is another quite good example of like that they spent like just a few weeks reading it before they kind of got on with the rest of the course and used that to come up with their set of criteria but they came up with the criteria from the model rather than being given the criteria and concrete examples memorable and meaningful and abstract criteria are almost never memorable or meaningful or anything and yeah like this like success criteria are useful if you know how they relate to the concrete but we learn from concrete to abstract. And so when we want students to make sense of success criteria, we have to start with the concrete. We have to start with the examples. Mm, love it. And, and I think one of the most powerful things of that's contained within this approach for me is it acts as a scaffold or a bridge from those more concrete approaches to a more generalized ability to abstract. So, you know, a, a student who's really struggling, basically all they're going to be able to do and this is what a lot of students do do when they plagiarize is just get someone else's example and copy it and change a few words, right? Because they just don't have the capacity. They don't know what quality looks like. They're just replicating. A student who's quite a lot further along, they, they're actually able to identify what the success criteria are. They know to look for them. And if there aren't any, they ask the teacher for some, and then they kind of are able to actually write to them and address them. Great skill. But the most advanced student is doing exactly what you just said they're they're actually just finding their own model in the wild. They're deconstructing it, turning it from the concrete to the abstract, and then moving back from the abstract to the concrete again. And I mean, this this is a process that served me so well throughout my life. For example, when I was doing my master's degree, I didn't know what a master's thesis was meant to look like. I, you know, I did an experiment, collected some data, and I was like, sat down the first day to write, and I was like, I literally have no idea what I'm doing. And so I just messaged my supervisor. I said, can you please send me the best master's thesis that you've supervised over the last few years? And I did that. I sat down and I literally, I read the first section and I wrote, I needed to to myself, oh, this is the, the, the introduction. In the introduction, he is doing this. He's explaining these things, essentially success criteria. And I, it was actually that point that I, re- I realized, wow, this is a process that can be used to deconstruct exemplars, work out the formula and then reconstruct work. So you talked about that. I'm, I'm not sure if that example was at the, a university level, but have you seen schools really emphasizing that level of conceptual, I guess, deconstruction? Um, that was in a school. That was a, again a year twelve or year thirteen uh, A level history course. 
I feel like models remain undervalued and underused, particularly in secondary. It's really interesting when I, uh, the, I used to do a course with heads of teaching and learning, and we do talk about modeling. And the primary people would be like, duh, like if you don't, if you don't show kids how to do it, they're not going to do it. And secondary teachers, whether explicitly or implicitly, they'd often be like, we want them to think for themselves. We don't want to make it too easy for them. We don't want to spoon feed them. We don't want them to copy it. And so I think models are like there just aren't enough of them. And there's there's this resistance. And actually realizing like if a student is copying the model, A, at least they're doing something. And B, like that's telling you something like really power like if they could write it themselves they probably would so if they need to copy the model not giving them the model is is like not a, a solution the other thing that i see like even if there is a model writing a second model that's like writing two models at different levels of quality is like hard work uh, and time consuming so yeah th these are not things that i see as often as i would hope to Mm. Here's another, here's a transfer question for us. And I, and I know that you've done increasingly large amount of works in kind of teacher education rather than student education in recent years. And it's, it's, that's also becoming the case for me a little bit as well. What does this mean for teacher education and where are the kind of untapped opportunities within teacher education in terms of supporting teachers to deconstruct quality models of quality teaching? There is an untapped thing everywhere of being more concrete and giving more concrete examples and giving more models. Uh, and people just won't do it and they jump to abstraction. A really cool book that I read years ago that's like influenced me forever is the Heath brothers who wrote the brilliant book Switch about how to change, but they also wrote a book called Made to Stick, not to be confused with Make It Stick, about how to, how to make an idea, like how, how do you get a viral idea? A mnemonic for it was success uh, and it was like specific something concrete but it was the concrete bit was the bit that like and so i'd like whenever i'd be talking to people and i'd see their eyes glaze over i'd be like oh i need to give a concrete example rather than continuing to like talk about abstractions what does that mean for teacher education just like just because teachers are teachers doesn't mean that the ideas we're teaching them are not difficult to grasp teachers need concrete examples just as much as, as students do it's a little bit harder because well, it depends what you need an example of. Like you can share an example of a lesson plan very easily. Like sharing an example of a good classroom clip is harder to organize, although it's getting easier as videos and video editing software becomes more accessible. But yeah, if you're doing teacher education stuff, like give a load of concrete examples and then talk about the principles rather than the other way around. Uh, don't expect your teachers to be able to, to identify what a concrete version is if you don't show them. Yeah. Um, Getting more concrete on the on the idea of concrete. So now I know you've just worked on two, or you've just essentially finished one training program on instructional coaching with Step Lab, and you're helping. You're working on designing another one for kind of cohort implementation next year. I'm curious: are there any ways in which you've kind of used this idea of concrete examples and deconstructions thereof within that training? I'd love to hear about it. So really, yeah, really good example. Written these modules with, well, I've written them, like Josh Goodrich had, had given me loads of really good feedback. We were like, okay, we're going to go and trial them. So although then like they've ended up as online models, we literally went to like be the online model and work with a bunch of coaches. We only did it with like half a dozen coaches. And by um, like the, literally the first person was like, oh, do you know what? The, the, the model, but so, so each training bit had like some stuff to read 
a, 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 like a, a model that you would see, uh, quiz, practical activities. And the first person was like, do you know, like, the words were like, you know, didn't know where I was going. But when I saw you model it, because we were like acting out what the video was going to be, it became clear. And so what I was like, you know, don't like have uh, done it again, because I'd put in the sequence of learning, read some stuff, show the model. So from the second person on, we then were like, okay, we're going to show the model and then get them to do the reading. And that is then the way that the, because there's now like online modules that, that people can access. And that is the way that those modules are constructed is there's like a little hook bit, which is like, this is what we're going to be talking about and why you should care because otherwise you're probably not going to get started. Uh, you can not, no, have no idea where it's going. And then like, here is a model where we're going to show you what we think the coaching com- this bit of the coaching conversation should look like. And then here are some words where we're going to give abstractions like inspiring or concrete or whatever. But like those will make sense once you've seen the, the video model. And that's like another really good example of, of like a very simple principle and a very clear and obvious principle that I'm articulating to you, not being the thing that comes to mind when I which is like, it's just a great example of how we can know things and still not act on them. Mm. Yeah. So to, to design that course, it would have helped to go to another course. That's really good. That started with the exemplar with the models, deconstruct it, recognize the models come first and, and, and go from there. Yeah. I still might not have thought to do it, but yes, that, that would, yeah. The, like the, eventually this is going to sink in to me. Yeah. Talking about it really helps. One final comment on this this idea of, of modeling and in response to what you were just saying, Harry, about the model coming first, this is something that I've found has been really effective and helpful in teaching kind of multi-step problem solving. And it first became obvious to me when teaching this algorithm called Dijkstra's algorithm in, in year 12 maths. What I used to do is kind of show the students step by step. I was like, here's step one. And you, this is the step, this is what you have to do and blah, blah, blah. And when you do that, you get to here and this is what step two. And I'd read out step two and then blah, 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 blah. And I found that like that modeling of that whole process would take like, you know, 10 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes if I was getting interrupted by students or something. And, and after a while, they'd just go, oh, sir, this is so long and convoluted and complicated. Like, how are we ever going to do this? And I'd go, no, no, it's not actually that hard. It's just taking a while now because I'm kind of explaining it all. And then after after I did that the first year, the second year, I thought, actually, like, I don't have to explain it all the first time. I should just show them what it looks like and show them how easy it is once you know how to do it. And so I'd say, this is Dijkstra's algorithm. I'm going to now do it for this question. I'm going to do it quite quickly just to show you uh, what it looks like when you know what you're doing. But then we're going to deconstruct it together. Here we go. It's like, a minute and a half later, I've done it. And they all go, oh, yeah, I could do that. And I go, okay. So, what I was actually doing there was there were five steps. And here they are. Read one out. Let's all do this this together. So, just that even, even within that context, just sw- swapping around that order makes it look like, well, first of all, it starts with the big picture. So, when you're giving them the pieces, they know the whole that it fits into. But also, it, it just shows that it's not a completely overwhelming task with a thousand moving pieces. And the same with instructional coaching. If we're training coaches, it's like, well, actually, there's a lot of nuance in instructional coaching. There's a lot of things that a coach needs to do. If we put that on a, on a list, it's very overwhelming. But if we just show a coaching conversation, people go, oh, yeah, I could do that. And they can approximate it. And then we add detail so that they kind of get that increased resolution about what are those actual key coaching moves that the, the coach is taking that's enabling that success. So I love that, love that idea. Model before the deconstruction. That's definitely one uh, for for us to keep in mind moving forward. So we've had a good look, Harry, at the responsive teaching. It's teaching responsively. We've had a good look at the kind of 
the teaching part, I think. We can now move on the, the, the kind of responsive part. So chapter four, the title thereof is, how can we tell what students learned in the lesson? One of the strategies you mentioned is the idea of an exit ticket. I'm sure quite a few listeners have heard about exit tickets before, Harry, but if you could just give us a little bit of a, um, an overview of the idea of an exit ticket and, and why they're effective and what makes a good one, uh, that'd be great. So, yeah, like the, 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 the two or more answers to that, it's the simple thing is like it's a thing at the end of the lesson that tells you whether or not students have understood the main point of the lesson. To add a little bit of complexity, it doesn't have to be at the exit and it doesn't have to be a, t- a ticket. And if I was doing this again, maybe I wouldn't call it an exit ticket because I think that sometimes kind of uh, creates a degree of confusion. But exit ticket is kind of a phrase. If you say exit ticket, people normally know what, what you're talking about. Which This is where some of the stuff... So what, like when I wrote the book, uh, the chapters went out for, for sort of academic peer review and there was like the first bunch of chapters which is everything we talked about till now and then the second bunch of chapters which is like exit tickets and feedback and so on and one of the the bits of feedback i got was like the first three chapters like it's just not very responsive which is true but the the case that I, i was trying to make is like you can only have you can only do good responsiveness if you've got a really clear direction in terms of where you're going and so we talked earlier about like don't try and do loads of things in the lesson just pick one thing and you have to have picked one thing to be able to have one little assessment that you can do at the end of the at the end of the lesson otherwise you'll say like well, we did five different things so obviously i need like a, a five like 15 minute activity which i'm then never going to look at so we've got our really discrete aim we've got like a single takeaway a single thing that we need to be able to solve and we then are going to design a very short sweet thing that's going to tell us whether students have got that or not so I'd, i would now call it like an encapsulating task uh it's like it, it encapsulates what we think the main thing from the lesson uh, is it needs to be really quick and really easy to mark i think there's there's kind of a space i've done quite a lot of work with teachers trying to use them and there's a really interesting spectrum between open and closed tasks as to what's best here and i'd say if you're trying to do exit tickets for the first time maybe do a, a closed task um, say like, here are three solutions to this mathematical problem. Which one is correct? Okay, some students will guess, but you'll still probably get like, if they're wrong, you're still getting quite a useful indication. And then people often then experiment and make it more open. But it just, yeah, it like put it whenever you want in the lesson, do it whatever format you want, have a really concrete way of seeing, do stu- can students do the thing that I said I wanted them to be able to do in the lesson and make sure everyone does it individually because what you want to know is, can everyone do it? I really like that idea of the the encapsulating task because I really, I guess I have thought about an exit ticket as this thing that has to happen at the end because obviously like the, the name exit ticket suggests that. So I'd like to now share when I've used the exit tickets and when I found it useful and then kind of a, a bit of a rebuttal to exit tickets, I guess a little bit, open up the conversation a little bit. So the only class that I've consistently used exit tickets for was in my first year of teaching and it was a VCAL mathematics class. VCAL stands for Victorian Certificate of Applied Learning. So it was a, a lower level than the standard kind of high school certificate of education. I had a lot more flexibility in how I ran the class and work with students. And I used an exit ticket that contained, it had three things on it. One was a motiv- motivational thing. And that said, did you win the lesson? Right. And the students had to kind of, they had to reflect on their effort, like a scale from one to 10. And 
they had to give themselves like an eight on the scale plus be able to write a little summary of what they learned in order to win the lesson. So, that was just a motivational thing and that's because I was having behavioral challenges with the students, right? And I found that getting them to have a bit of metacognition about how hard they tried in the lesson did improve their their kind of motivation and engagement. And also, to my surprise, they were often quite honest about how much effort they'd put in, which was a really lovely surprise. So, there was that kind of self-rating, did you win the lesson? Then, as I said, there was like a little summary of, of what did you learn? And often that was motivated by a question, but also sometimes it was just literally, what, what did you learn in this lesson? And the other thing that I had was, what questions do you have or what's something you'd like to learn more about? And I found this was really good because it kind of created this like cycle whereby I could, I could work out what students were taking away, but also I could show them that I was actually using their feedback responsibly and, and saying, you know, oh, you tell me that you've told me that you want to learn more about this. I'm going to teach you more about this thing. Um, you know, how this applies to your shopping discounts or like buying a car or the kind of things that a teenager actually cares about. And that had positive motivational benefits as well. And in the end of year reflections, students said that that was something that they, they really liked. So, that's where I feel like I used exit tickets of a form and I that was really good and I was really happy with how that class went in general. I haven't really used exit tickets since then and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the processing load. So, I started to, I would use them a bit, but I just find like I would leave a class with like 20 responses and, you know, you have got a full day of teaching. You've got like five piles worth of exit tickets and you're like looking at them at the end of the day and you're, and you're like, I have to plan tomorrow's lesson or I have already planned it. Like it's going to take me like at least 10 minutes to go through each of these piles if I'm, if that's if I'm being efficient. And then do I like plan some responsive tasks next lesson based upon it? It just got a little bit overwhelming for me, I guess. That's one reason why I've kind of shied away from them a little bit. Another reason I've shied away from them is I actually think there's a more important time to do that check for understanding than at the end of that lesson because of the kind of natural way in which people forget, I think it's much more valid to assess that understanding at the start of the next lesson rather than at the end of that lesson because I know as a student myself, often I can, you know, for example, at the end of this podcast, I'll probably be able to answer lots of questions about what we've talked about within this podcast very accurately and eloquently, hopefully. But if you ask me tomorrow morning or in three days' time, what was that thing Harry said about X, Y, Z, I might go, gee, I really don't remember. And it's often for me, it's not until I've listened to the edit of the podcast once or twice and then I actually sit down and write the summary of the podcast that the ideas start to stick and even after that, they, they still float away. So, I actually think the, the validity of that assessment timing is for me a little bit questionable. So, there's there's two rebuttals for you, Harry. I, I, know, I know what your response is to the first one, but I think it's very, very, well, I've got a bit of an idea because you kind of cover it in the book, but I think it's really important for you to address for, for listeners. But I'm also very curious to hear your thoughts on, on the second one. Cool. Yeah, there's loads of different things going on there. It's really, really, really interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of do a back of the envelope calculation in the book and I say, look, if you've got five classes, which is the average teacher has, uh, the average secondary teacher will have five classes a day. You've got 30 students in each of those classes. You've got 150 little slips of paper. Um, and I, I think I work out like if you do five minutes each, then like you've got to 8.30 p.m. You haven't planned any of your lessons for, for tomorrow and, 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 and you're in trouble. So, yeah, there's a few things to say. Like one is like, it is not, I'm, I'm not suggesting that these need to be like tightly or closely marked. The sole purpose of this is to tell you what students have understood so that you can then know what to do next. 
it might be that you, you want to close mark them, but clearly that's not going to be sustainable for all your classes. And I think it's more important to know what everyone's understood than it is to, and we'll, we'll go on, I think, and talk about feedback later. It's more important to know what everyone's understood than to like give them detailed feedback. And so uh, like to, to, to take it to a radical extreme, if I look at 30 exit tickets and no one got it, I can just throw all those exit bit tickets in the recycling and just reteach them but there's no point in putting comments on it. No one got it. I'm just going to need to start from, from scratch. Likewise, if everyone got it correct, maybe I don't, which is clearly never going to happen. But if, if that were to happen, again, I can just recycle them um, because no one, like, the, there's, there's no benefit to, to commenting on them. You talked about planning the, the next lesson. What I would find is it, this would do about between a third and a half of the planning of the next lesson for me. So basically, yeah, like, each lesson, instead of, if you imagine, like, uh, 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 60 minutes and I'm going to do 60 minutes on a topic. So doing 60 minutes on a topic and then 60 minutes on the next topic, I'd end up doing like half an hour on a topic, an exit ticket, another half an hour next lesson, and then starting the next topic. And so they, that gave students two bites of the cherry, gave me two chances to like uh, explain it or like correct the bad explanations I'd done first time round. And so like a lot of my planning was 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 getting getting done and so what i my i would consistently get through i would do like a class in 15 minutes and i was also tracking like just recording how every student had done because that was useful for me so if you weren't doing that that would be even quicker so yeah like fundamentally if it like i i think you should definitely have some measure of what every student has understood and i think you should move everything else around in order to be able to do that. And if that means like rushing through looking at them, that's absolutely fine because it's better to have spent three and a half minutes and know that like five students have missed X than it is to have said like, this is too big and, and too difficult. As an aside, but maybe useful for people in, in some jurisdictions and countries, at the time there was a kind of like, we need to be marking really often. And so whenever my bosses were like, how often are you marking? I was like, I am marking every single day, every single lesson. Uh, and then no one could really like make me mark any more frequently than that. So that was like useful. There's not a reason for doing them. There's a more bigger and more profound point. And I'm now struggling to, to remember. There was like an American charter school guy who gave a talk literally uh, like 12 or 13 years ago that I was at. And he talked about like finding the person in, I think, Boston who had like the best maths results in the entire city, state, whatever it was. And the, so this American charter school guy goes and like sits in the back of the maths classroom. And, and the, you know, like the math teacher like introduces a thing, does an explanation, students do some work, and then the students go out. And he talks to the teacher, he's like, I don't understand. Like, it's just like any other maths lesson. What, what are you doing differently? And the teacher's answer was that every student has done an exit ticket and everyone who's not got the exit ticket right, I'm going to go get later in the day and reteach them until the point that like they get it. Um, now, clearly that is not sustainable uh, as a teacher unless you're in like a, a really small nurture program. You've got a handful of students in a very flexible timetable. Time but I think there's a really profound point there is like, why do, where and when do gaps open up? We do the teaching inevitably like unless we have a completely homogenous class, some kids get it, some kids partially get it, and some kids really struggle. What makes the difference about the gap is what we do with and for those kids who struggle. And so the more quickly you can pick it up and the more quickly you can do something about it, the more likely it is you're you're not going to see, you're going to close gaps, you're going to see those gaps not open up. And I think an exit ticket is a very small 
way of working towards that of saying like i'm not going to wait till the end of if it's not an exit ticket is it are you doing an end of the week test are you doing an end of the, the month test like that's a long time to let things slide i could talk about your point about doing them at the beginning or i can pause there because i've thrown quite a lot of ideas out already that's okay. I think I think I think that's that's good. I mean, that's that's that, that's such a powerful idea and narrative about that teacher who was getting the best results and 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 when you address the gaps because I mean that's all it comes down to, right? It's like teach the thing, work out if the kids learned the thing. If the kids didn't learn the thing, teach them the thing again, like and keep repeat until all- I, like I got a whole book out of that. But that is basically like the summary of the book. Like yeah. just, just teach it well and then check and then do something about it. Yeah. Um. So then you you said like should 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 it be at the end of the lesson or the beginning of the next? Um. I when people are like starting out on exit tickets, I say always start by doing it at the end of the lesson, not because it's the per- perfect time, but because adapting and responding on the spot is really hard. And so if I'm at the beginning of the lesson and I do an entry ticket kind of thing, like students do something in the first five minutes, and then I realize they didn't understand it. Um, if I've been teaching the same course for 10 years, I've got like 15 different explanations or examples that I can draw on. But if I'm fairly new to the piece and I'm like, oh, no one understood. And now I have no idea what to do. So I'm just going to have to plow on. So it's better to have it at the end of the lesson because you've always got a minimum 24 hours to make a plan, work out what's going on in students' heads, go and talk to someone else. And I was teaching geography and I found out that kids thought, the water in rivers comes from the sea. And okay, like the, like I was teaching near the, the tidal Thames. So in that sense, like the water in the Thames does come from the sea, but but like water definitely flows downhill. Um, but I, I had to do a chunk of processing to because it never occurred to me that students would think this. And I think trying to do that while your students are sitting there wondering what you're going to do next is really, really punishing. But yeah, fundamentally, like an exit ticket is about performance, not learning. Uh, but it's useful to know what's, what students' performance level is. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't couldn't agree more on that front. And as as for the the processing time, and I, I think the benefit of having that increased processing time, you know, f- especially for novice teachers who are still building their content knowledge, definitely outweighs the potential increased validity of doing the assessment at the start of the next lesson versus the end of the previous one. And also, I think it's it's just one of those things where when we are starting out teaching a subject. We almost just have to accept that it's going to take a long time to build up that expertise, uh, and 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 all and and you know you're probably going to be there till eight o'clock anyway. Unfortunately, whether you're using exit tickets or not, I definitely was. But also a big part of that building up that knowledge and and the the real expert knowledge that teachers have is about student misconceptions, right? So by constructing these exit tickets, you're actually skewing your preparation time to focus on the things that actually matter the most rather than just designing random lessons every day about the things you think are important and then not actually learning whether they were the things that were important. So it's almost a way of responsively practicing yourself and preparing for for those like hot button issues. What's the difference between an exit ticket, Harry, and a hinge question, if anything? So your exit ticket is is at, your, at some point in your lesson, students are going to write individually and you're then going to read it and find out what's going going on. Your hinge question is you're in the middle of the lesson. Uh, have students understood? Should I keep going or, or not? And kind of like there's loads of places you could put a hinge question, but kind of the, the prototypical place would be, let's say you've done a load of explanation. Like here's a new concept, kids. Hinge question, have students understood? Are they ready to go on and do some independent practice or do I need to, to explain it a bit more? And so 
so hinge question is, is, is a task that's going to give us the information that we need about everyone simultaneously, which is a really tall order. There are, there are like loads of ways to, to get this wrong. And the kind of the, the most basic one is, is you do a kind of any questions before we move on. And Doug Lemov has got a wonderful piece in his book saying like, you know, even if a student knew that they had a gap in their knowledge and was able to like articulate that in a certain way, they wouldn't have the confidence to, or very few students would have the confidence to stop the whole class uh, in the like two and a half seconds that we pause between. Any questions? Great, let's get on with the, the task. So it's it's an active check, not based on self-report. Like if we just do thumbs up, thumbs down, students may not, may be overconfident or may just want to like avoid our attention. So we need to check what students know rather than, uh, what they think they know. Um, and I suggest it, it needs to be a multiple choice question because what you need is something that's that's going to tell you exactly what students uh, have understood. People are really resistant to this, uh, sort of understandably, because they're like, oh, multiple choice questions are really narrow. And I also hear, tend to hear quite a lot about like, oh, I ask really good follow-up questions. I'm like, follow-up questions are great, but if I'm asking little Freddie, follow-up question one, follow-up question two, follow-up question three, A, Everyone else, if they're listening, is finding out what the correct answer is. And B, everyone else is starting to, to switch off. Whereas a multiple choice question that everyone can answer simultaneously will give me a sense of what everyone understands. And I suggest building it around the, the misconceptions. And again, this is this is one where if we plan and identify the misconceptions in advance, writing a, a multiple choice question, a hinge question becomes a little bit easier. So one of my favorite examples will be in history teaching will be to say, um, here are five pictures of different buildings which one of them is like like you put them in time order or which one of them is the oldest or whatever um, and one of those buildings will always be black and white because for kids things in black and white are older than things in color and that means a black and white drawing of a factory from the industrial revolution is older than a roman aqueduct in a color color picture and so that is like a misconception that i know that students are going to keep thinking until I force it out of them. And so if I put out this thing and I say, which is the oldest building? And okay, you can hold up your fingers or you can write up on a whiteboard, like building number one, put up, put up one finger if it's building number one. And I know within five seconds, 10 seconds, who thinks what, and I can then act accordingly. So, so hinge question is like an incredibly powerful way of finding out what everyone's thinking and then saying, we're ready to keep going or, or, or not. Mm. Okay. I'm drawing a diagram. Great. Tell me if you agree. I've I've written, I've ri- I've called it encapsulating task. Yeah. So what I've drawn, what Harry's looking at, listeners, is a big circle that says check for understanding. Within that big circle, another circle that says exit ticket or encapsulating task, and within that encapsulating task, it says hinge question. And to to explain that a little bit, uh, well, actually, yeah, an encapsulating task is a form of check for understanding. I don't know what other forms of ex- check, checking for understanding there are, actually. That's something something interesting. But also, I think, to me, it seems like a hinge question is just an exit ticket slash, because, I mean, previously you said an exit ticket doesn't necessarily have to be at the exit. So it's just a tar- A hinge question seems to me just to be an encapsulating task where the amount of time it takes for the teacher to get an overview of student understanding is short. That seems to me the only distinguishing feature. Yeah, I think conceptually that's really nice. It is, yeah, I am saying like it should encapsulate, like you can't, it, writing these takes time, asking them takes time, responding to them takes time. So you want like one 
or maybe two in lessons. So again, like having a really clear lesson purpose is going to be really important. We say like, here's the one thing I want students to, to understand. Here are the two or three ways that they're most likely to misunderstand. And here is my check for understanding in the middle of the lesson that's going to tell me whether they've fallen into one of these couple of traps. I, I think that, although conceptually that works, I think that like the, the, the distinctions in form are worth considering and that, that like you are presenting it to students in a different way. You're getting quite, so, so there are kind of vagaries in terms of um, like there are classroom management issues in terms of making sure you need to hear from everyone simultaneously because otherwise people are just going to copy each other. But yeah, I think like the, it, 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 we are just talking about different ways of finding out what students have understood. Mm. What sits outside the encapsulating task thing, but still within check for understanding, would you say? Well, like there's like any way that you get data on student understanding, depending on how you're defining check for understanding. So like if I look at students' work after the lesson or during the lesson, I'm check or I'm like Josh Goodrich is really into circulating. So I'm circulating, I'm checking for understanding, but it's not an encapsulating task. And then the stuff that that probably sits on on your diagram, but outside check for understanding, like when you look at students' faces and they look blank and you're like, are you understanding? I think I'm going to go over this again or like talk me through what you're thinking. Like that is a data that you're using that you're then turning into a check for understanding. But I think my my claim would be like, it's very easy to, to rely on those, that kind of things and say like, oh, I know what my students have understand, uh, understanding because I am gauging their faces all the time. And again, like experienced teachers are doing that and are doing that really well. But that is not sufficient because some students are very good at like having a mask, literally or metaphorically, uh, and therefore you not knowing what's really going on in their mind. So a teacher can use a facial expression as a cue to check for understanding, but they can't rely on facial expressions or similarly, like if you say anyone got any questions, students might have great questions and that'd be really helpful, but you can't rely on that to tell you what all students have understood. So the nearer the, the, nearer the center of your diagram, the more intentional, and I'd say probably the more powerful. I like that. Cool. And I'll share that diagram in the, in the show notes. It's, I'd copyright it if I was you. That's going to be worth yeah. a lot of money one day. TM. Love it. Um, chapter six, Harry, how can we help every single student improve? This chapter's around feedback. We're getting really responsive here. But to start off with, how is good feedback like murder? So this this comes from a Val Shoot review, which is, is like a really handy review of the evidence on feedback. And she says feedback is good feedback is like a murder because the student needs motive, opportunity, and means to act on it. Um, so motive, like you could you know, you probably all, almost all listeners who are teachers have like given students feedback and then seen students not act on it because they're like they didn't think they could do it or they didn't want to do it or whatever opportunity. Like if if I think one a really big trap that we fall into is we give students feedback and kind of expect them to act on it. But actually, for many students, unless you give them the time and say, do it now, it's unlikely to happen, partly because they may not be motivated, partly because they may not know how to act on it. And then means like students need that the, if I say to you, like, you know, do X, I need to give you probably concrete guidance in how to do X better. Mm. I think it's such a neat and uh, colourful analogy and memorable it's fantastic harry now imagine i'm a i'm a school leader and we need a we need a feedback policy at our school right every other school's got a feedback policy i've been told from the department of education or someone that we need a feedback policy what should be my feedback policy harry 
so this is sort of draws on some of the stuff we've we've talked about earlier right like we want to be clear about the principles we want to avoid lethal mutations we know that actually principles and abstractions are not very useful so we want to give loads of concrete examples so i think we want something that has I mean, you may well be familiar with the Netflix sort of um, expenses and HR policy that kind of like act in the company's best interests at all times. And like, that's all you need to know. And so the shorter, the more succinct, the clearer we can make the statement of principles, the better. And then a load of examples rather than a load of kind of conditions. So like a really obvious thing that people worry about with feedback policies is like the English and the maths teachers see students five times a week the re teacher or the you know the drama teacher sees them once a fortnight uh what should the marking schedule look like and so i think saying like you know your sentence might be like students need frequent precise feedback and the opportunity and support to act on it that would be a feedback policy to me but then you might have like a thing that says like in maths ollie does from now on, exit tickets every single day and feeds back on them straight away. In drama, Jeanette does a termly project and gives students, and, and so there you're allowing teachers to see like there are different ways of being frequent, there are different ways of being specific, each of which is valid, and helping them to, to, to understand what the core bits are, like, you know, this is what specificity looks like in maths, and this is what it looks like in science, and there, that means different things, but they're both trying to be specific. I personally don't care about policies or guidance documents. I think they're like a waste of time. Uh, I'm only really interested in concrete implementation. And so if I were a school leader thinking about this stuff, I would spend like five minutes or I'd spend like 5% of my time on the policy and 95% of my time like talking to people, going into meetings, looking at work, giving feedback to actually try and make sure feedback was good. And then I'd kind of like post hoc sort the policy out so articulated what i was trying to do because i think that would be like 10 times more useful so if you're going to have a long meeting about what the feedback policy should be don't have a short meeting about feedback policy and then just go and see some lessons i mean that bring that kind of brings us to that, uh, another question i wanted to ask about chapter seven which is how can we make this work in reality so you know people are here uh they're, they're listening to this podcast they've read your book they understand the principles they've seen the exemplars in your book they're, they're like oh yeah this is great in my department or in my school we can really teach more responsibly we can be more effective with our feedback and our planning and our modeling so on and so forth i mean you've worked with a number of schools since writing the book it was a, a number of years ago you've seen schools try to implement it um and i'm sure i'm sure you've seen some schools do better than others what advice do you have to schools who are at this kind of exciting inflection point where they they could make it work so i'd probably direct schools thinking about this to our other podcast where we talked about habits of success because that was all about like how do you help people to change and we had a, a really long really good conversation about helping teachers to change and fundamentally i think it's, it's like start start with the barriers and then overcome them so like barriers we've talked a lot i think in the, the podcast about how to be clear about what we're trying like what is it that we mean um, and how how to make that both clear but also functional, usable for teachers. So, like, okay, if we if we say we're gonna have a policy, we want everyone to do exit tickets. Like, what do we mean by an exit ticket? If Ollie does an exit ticket at the start of the lesson, not the end of the lesson, is that okay? How long should it take him to to look at them? Does he have to mark them all, and so on and so on? So, like, being really clear about what what is we're trying to do, overcoming the barriers of lack of time, lack of 
lack of follow through, but I don't mean that as a criticism, lack of follow through because we're doing 27 other things and actually like starting to do exit tickets is maybe not my priority. And so, so then you end up building things to say, well, okay. I mean, we, we talked about this model of professional development. Like if I want someone to do something, they need the insight. They need to understand why we're doing it. So I'm going to have to, in some way, talk about like this is why I think hinge well, this is why hinge questions are a good thing. Motivation and, and and setting goals. So like, okay, here's a load of ways to be more responsive. Everyone pick one, or we've picked one because that's what we have to do. Techniques. So having a load of really concrete examples. Say okay, like here's a cool exit ticket. Here's one in science. Here's one in math, and so on. And then the biggest single thing probably is just that support for practice. Well, okay. Like, and you know, maybe we'll talk about step lab and instructional coaching in a bit, but instructional coaching is really powerful because it has, it, it is giving you that ongoing feedback and also helping to hold you accountable because someone's coming in next week and knowing that someone's coming in next week in the most supportive way possible also makes me more likely to, to do the thing that I've told them that I'm going to do. So it's, so it's that compendium of, of like, Components of effective professional components of effective behavior change tied to our clarity about what it is that we want to change. Harry, we last spoke in late 2021. What are you proud of that you've achieved since then? So uh, I think that like, I have to start with a thing where like, I don't know how much I've achieved, but like I, I have brought another child into the world. Uh, and if I don't mention that, that would be uh, unseemly, but like, it's, you know, like having a family with two children is different from having a family with one child. Uh, yeah, like that's 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 been really cool, really fun. So last winter, well, I guess at the start of this year, um, set up um, a school surveys program function at TeacherTap. So TeacherTap is a daily survey app. Finds out what about eight eight and a half thousand teachers in England are thinking every day. We've now got a service that helps schools the school leaders to find out what their staff are thinking and compares that to national benchmark of similar schools and. Uh, I'm really excited about it because I think it's it's a good way to to close the gap between like we know we consistently we say what's going on in the school and the leader thinks one thing and the teacher thinks some, something else and I think if we close that gap if the leader can see the school through the teacher's eyes that's a really powerful form of feedback and will help them to run the school better again like how how proud can I be of that like I work with an amazing team who've done a load of load of work around that uh, but I'm I'm glad it's come into into being. I finished a draft of another book on how to develop teachers. And that literally I finished like two, three weeks ago. And that's writing that around having another child in the world is, is uh, interesting. We talked a bit about the coaching training for step lab, but I think that's going to be really, really powerful, really exciting. I think that's probably enough to be go. I did a, I did a big review of professional development around developing world but i don't even know if it's ever going to get published so but anyway that's that's the thing that i've done that, that may never see the light of day so yeah a few things that's great harry and a few uh future eii episodes as well in there by the sounds of things in relation to the first part of your answer to that question about pride harry you wrote a really cool article recently about how people can choose a primary school for their child and i just really enjoyed it so i just thought um you know to go off the well, it's not off the education topic. To, to delve deeper from a different angle into the education topic, what advice do you have for people who are trying to choose a primary school for their child? So this came out of a, a shocking experience of like being given, being on a tour of a primary school for my own child and realizing that after like God knows how many years and like writing a load of books and going on a load of podcasts that I had like no idea how to choose a primary school for my child because I was getting like... Partly because I'm a secondary specialist, partly because I'm used to being invited to schools with 
by people who like quite often they'll be like, okay, come, we'll go and see, we'll go and see some classrooms. And they're like, this is one of our really strong teachers, really excited what's going on there. And so being given the kind of like, oh, like here are a load of children running around. I'm like, should they be running around? Should they be playing? Should they be doing phonics now? I don't know. I was just like, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. So anyway, I asked a load of people who, who, uh, really smart, really inspiring in education. And I got a few really cool bits of advice. So one of them was to do with just like working out what is the thing that you care about most. Um, and then tied to that, working out, and this is what my boss, Laura McNerney, said was like, what can you compensate for? So, for example, like, is school for you? I mean, this kind of, again, goes back to our, like, how we opened our last podcast and we talked about the purpose of education. We talked about actually there are different competing purposes of education. So are you someone who, like, the nice possible way doesn't really care what they learn, but just desperately needs the childcare so he can get to work. Are you someone who uh, wants school to be like a fount of creativity and joy? Are you someone who just wants your kids to learn to read? Are you someone who, um, I'm like, what is the balance between those things? And then the compensation piece is to say like, what things can you do at home and what things can't you do at home? So if you're bilingual, it doesn't really matter when the school starts um teaching kids languages you can just teach them languages yourself if on the other hand like you're not very confident in numeracy you are not going to be able to to compensate if the school's numeracy program isn't great and then the third bit of advice was just hear more from from users and so in our case we sort of weighed it up but the biggest thing so my older son has cerebral palsy and so the thing that we couldn't compensate for would be like if we sent him to a school that did not have an inclusive ethos like we can teach him phonics at home but we can't like make this we can't like compensate for like an environment in which uh, he's excluded from activities or like kids are nasty to him or teachers are nasty to him. And so that is like the, the school that we sent him to is a school that is incredibly good at working with children with additional needs. And we talked to, um, became eventually quite good friends with like a parent of older kids who've got cerebral palsy. And she was just like, I cannot speak highly enough of the school. Um, so yeah, it's fine. I like, I wrote about this and, and a friend came back and she was like, uh, for us, the big thing was how our, how the school would deal with incidents of racism against our kids. And so we like asked every head teacher what they would say. And it was really different, interesting, the difference between head teachers who, who like said it in their talk and head teachers who had to be asked and were like, oh, yeah, that is a good question. Like, maybe we would do this. And so, yeah, I think, you know, like much like planning a lesson, having a really clear goal for, for what you think the thing school can do and then finding a school around that is, is probably the place to go. That's good. And also being responsive in thinking about like, what are they already getting, you know, and what, what, what do we need to address that's, that's not being covered already? Excellent. Now, one of the, one of the useful things about setting goals, um, Harry, and, and motivation, things like that is, you know, making public declarations around goals. It can often be a real motivator. It can also help us, hold us accountable, things like that. I, I think it was last episode, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, I think you made a commitment to do some writing of some Viking stories because it was something you were hoping to, hoping to achieve at the time. So I thought it would be remiss of me to not check in with you and uh, ask you how you're going with them. Uh, yeah. Uh, and you know, shout out to my friend, Robbie Coleman, who emailed me after listening to the podcast and said, I've heard it and I'm now going to hold you accountable. So thanks Robbie. Cause you obviously didn't hold me accountable enough because I've not written them. I mean, I think what I've learned is less about goal setting, but more about like my own time and capacity. Like at that time, I just finished writing, uh, habits of success. And I was like, I don't know if I feel up for writing another book about education at the moment. So writing fiction will work quite well. Actually then early autumn, I was like, I have just spent like five years researching and then leading a, a program for head to teach development. I should probably write this down. And I 
that became the draft that we were just talking about. And basically, I don't have capacity to do. Well, if I if I were to try and write two books at once, something else in my life would have to go. I mean, I guess I've learned don't give out your goals in public on a podcast uh, <laughs> unless you want to be held. Maybe you know, being held accountable is good. Um, the Viking stories are on hold. I've got another three two books about education and another book to, to, to get done and then we'll see where we get to. Wow. Harry, I've just had a, an absolute breakthrough, right? So your, your, your most recent book, that's not like fully finalized yet, right? You can still make slight changes. And I am probably also, I'm guessing I'm correct in thinking that it also has some kind of narrative like style kind of bits in it, right? Yeah. So here we go. Just make sure all the narratives in that book are about people with Viking names. Ah, then I've done both. And you have done both. Yeah. I could even put in some like, there's a book about like Viking, learning to become a Viking. I don't know. I mean, like most young adult books, there's almost always like a, like a, a training sequence in it as well. Like, or, or like a phone, like, like Harry Potter is basically a book about going to school and even books that are like, yeah, like the, 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 there's always, there's always some, so like learning to be a Viking. That was always going to be like book two. So yeah. Still on the topic of books. Last episode, you recommended the following books, The Hidden Lives of Learners by Graham Nuttall, Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Do you have any further book recommendations for listeners today? Um, first, ignore these recommendations until you've read those three, because those three are still probably my favourite. And since that point, I've read, I've been reading quite a lot of like businessy books, partly because of like School surveys is, is like trying to set up a, a business as well as a service. So there are a few that have been like cool, like um, the book called That Will Never Work about Netflix, but called Working Backwards that was about Amazon, The Machine That Changed the World, which is about lean production. So like really just really interesting about like how you design a system. Um, and like Working Backwards was really interesting because if you've ever sat in a meeting and been like, I don't understand why we're here, actually Amazon have had a go at like trying to make that better, which is, is quite interesting. I think. If I was to recommend one, it's quite long, but it's beautifully written and it just flows. And it's called Seeing Like a State. And the subtitle is How Certain Schemes to Improve the Human Condition Have Failed. And it's just just like loads of stuff that I'm interested in, in terms of um, how you listen to people, how hard it is to make a good central plan if you're at the top. So how to set a plan, uh, the consequences of, of uh, politics at the extremes and so on. Really interesting in that is something I'm hoping to write more about in the future. So, so that was, that was cool. Wonderful. Any last calls to action? Things you'd like listeners to go away today and do, Harry? Two or three things. So one, if you're interested in the, some of the teach development stuff that I uh, have mentioned, go to improvingteaching.co.uk. Uh, if you want to read a dra- draft chapter, you'd be really welcome. And I'd be really grateful for the feedback. Two, if you're interested in, in school surveys or interested in finding out what teachers think, get in touch at teachtap.co.uk. And then three, if you're trying to get your teachers to do responsive teaching stuff, I've like recorded the webinars that I most frequently would give in person as training at responsiveteaching.co.uk, uh, and you can access those for your school, which I think goes really nicely with the book. Fantastic, and we'll include links to all of those recommendations in the show notes. Harry Fletcherwood, thank you so much for yet another incredibly stimulating conversation. You know, I, I read a lot of books on education. I read this one on the, on the way over to um, England uh, from my recent trip where after which we had a, had a beer or two, which was fantastic. Um, and I even got you to sign the book, which was a real highlight for me. It is so good. And it's, it is definitely one of the 
top few books I would say that especially beginning teachers who aren't familiar with these ideas of formative assessment and so on really, really should be be reading because linking back to that comment you made it that that quoting Robert Coe at the start of this podcast, you know, most teachers think they're doing these things, but really like there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of ways it can be done wrong. And your book is just so clear in sketching out exactly what these principles mean and how they can look in practice. So I can't thank you enough. Is 100% the best example of a book on formative assessment that I've read, I would say. So if people are keen to get their head around this idea of formative assessment, get responsive teaching. And it's also got so much value in there on the planning side of things as well. So Harry, thanks for writing the book. Thanks for your chat chat today. And I look forward to uh, more chats in future. Thanks for having having me back. I will look forward to my third podcast appearance in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, a blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe for my weekly summary of key takeaways on all things teaching and learning. That web address for a weekly email summary, again, is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. Oh,